Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're back with Season 1 alum, Connor Ryan. Connor is a professional skier, an ultra runner, a film director, and someone who's actively working to decolonize the outdoors. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for free spring and fall training sessions. Visit obctrainingacademy.com or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you sit with and you savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines you'll keep and you'll come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out in mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Connor, thank you so much for joining me again. How are you? Oh, I'm doing so well, Chris. I'm really stoked to be on the show with you today. Awesome. So you have been super busy. You just got back from a massive road trip to Alaska up in the Tongass. Tell me about that. What was going on up there? Yeah, for sure. I'm working on a story up there in, in Southeast Alaska and Tlingit Ani. And like you said, we ended up road tripping all the way there from Denver. It kind of started back with like the crazy Southwest Airlines debacle of the holiday time to where we couldn't make our flight to Seattle. And because our final destination is Aquan, AKA Juneau, Alaska, and there are no roads in or out of Juneau, Alaska. We'd always plan to drive, you know, some length of the trip and go up through BC and catch a ferry from Skagway. But we ended up driving the entire way, which was 60 hours split over seven days. We caught like three powder days along the way. It was a, it was a really unique way to get there. But for me, as someone who lives on, on, you know, the, the southwest corner kind of of my traditional homelands and then traveling all the way up to southeast to be on, you know, Lincoln on Ani, Clinket homelands. It, it was really cool just as someone who's, you know, gotten to become a student of both cultures. My partner is Clinket. It is really cool to kind of span that entire distance between two just wildly different, you know, ecologies for me, basically in the desert, the, the arid plains to, you know, the world's largest temperate rainforest and, and seeing every sort of mountain in between because it is kind of mostly mountains between here and there. But yeah, I'm really excited about what we've got going on up there and all the kids that we're helping to get on the skis and boards up, up on their homelands in Alaska. Awesome. We will all look forward for that project when it comes out. So the... Last time we talked to you, actually, the first time you were on the show, the show dropped the same day as the international debut of Spirit of the Peaks, your directorial debut, and it came out to massive acclaim. So congratulations. I mean, anyone who's seen it obviously understands why, you know, critics and viewers loved it so much. But 
it got big. So what was the aftermath of that? Was there positive things that came out of that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been just a, a cascade of good stuff since Spirit of the Peaks. I would say like most immediately, I'd love to like focus on the the impacts that it's had, you know, for folks on the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, you know, because I work so closely with their communities in that. And, that, you know, Bird Red was, in, in my opinion, the, the star of that movie, a lot of people's favorite character. And I would just like everyone to know that Bird Red is still skiing. I think we'll be skiing together in Silverton. Well, we'll probably go to Purgatory, actually. But next week, and he, the, the latest I talked to him was three or four days ago, and he posted a picture of himself climbing in the Uray Ice Park. Um, oh, wow. And he climbed nearly every route in there on his first day. And I just take a lot of pride in that, considering that, you know, Uray was a, was a U chief. And, you know, he's been leading some trips that his rec center that he works at there on the reservation has done to go ski up at Telluride. And, you know, I've gotten to show the film down there. Lorelei Cloud is up to more great stuff still. Tribal council woman and board of some amazing nonprofits and gotten to work closely with the folks over in Toyok as well and show the film in Toyok and in Cortez. And so it's really made its rounds all around that area. And yeah, it's really, really had some huge effects. It also led to us being able to just kind of the momentum on so many other programs, the Icon Pass, Natives Outdoors Scholarship that we've done has gotten off the ground and grown. And I think like Spirit of the Peaks is a large part of that for folks to just, you know, have something to point to and say, we can tell this really works. You know, lots more land acknowledgements, rolling out its ski areas, and, and just a whole lot of work that I'm seeing the industry put in to to make sure that Native youth are Getting that opportunity to get out and ski and ride, which which I think is, for me, one of the ultimate outcomes I think we could have. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Awesome. The Icon Scholarship now in its second year and, yeah, growing massively, which, again, congratulations. I saw that you were doing some work with the uh, Taos Pablo Sports Alliance and the Share Winter Foundation, and I appreciated your comments on that. You are like... This is a model that could be done in other communities, this kind of collaboration. So what are they what are they doing differently down there? You know, something that I think is really incredible uh, down in Taos and at Taos Pueblo is they've had a program to get kids skiing for, from their schools. They're on their reservation for generations. And so there's this really cool intergenerational movement that, that I see happening there. So when, when I worked out there, most recently, I went and worked with, like you said, the TIPSA, the Taos Pueblo Sports Alliance, and specifically their ski program, which is sponsored by the, the Charles N. Romero Foundation. And, and Charles Romero was a Taos Pueblo skier who, who passed just a few years ago. And in his legacy, they've kind of really decided, you know what, he was such an important member of our community because he was a skier and he was always at the mountain and he had his presence there that they want, they want to build more leaders like that in their community. And so the whole Romero family there in, in Taos is really dedicated to making sure that on the mountain, you know, Taos Ski Valley, that, that there's this presence of Taos Pueblo folks and they have a bunch of incredible allies working all around the mountain there as well. 
folks who work for the mountain, folks who work for the tribe, folks who don't some of both, where you're like, where's the line? And I love to see that. For folks who don't know, you know, one of the most sacred places for the Taos Pueblo is right outside of the boundaries of Taos Key Valley. And it's, it's a piece of land and a sacred lake and mountains that was returned to them what, about 40 years ago now. But that, that time when their land was returned to them, a lot of people look at that as the mark in time where the U.S. government started to make this transition from only enacting policies that stole native land to starting to enact policies that return native land. And so with Taos Ski Valley being a B Corp and Taos Pueblo being so closely involved there, there's just this real strong feeling of, of tight-knit community and resurgence that's happening there. So I'm really stoked about it. And, and I should have some really awesome content that I, I can't say too much about yet that'll be coming coming your way next season to to show some of that story. So. Oh, exciting. Okay, we'll wait for that too. Sort of switching gears a little bit. This past summer, you signed up for, and I know you've done the distance before, but you signed up for your first official 50 miler. It was my first. 50 miler altogether. I'd never gone that distance. I ran an ultra by once, actually by accident once, I should say, when I was at Taos. But an ultra in the sense that an ultra marathon is anything longer than a marathon. I got lost when I, one of the, the second time I ran the the Kachina Peaks marathon in Taos. And I ended up doing about 27.3 miles. But this year I, I was signed up to do the the Leadville marathon. I thought I was going to repeat at that marathon distance against and I ended up getting COVID and having to push back. And so I ended up in the Leadville, the Silver Rush 50 miler. And that was honestly like one of the, one of the better experiences that I've had in running and community. I think that's maybe the magic of when you tor- turn the corner from a marathon to an ultra marathon is you start needing a lot of friends in order to pull it off. And for me, like I loved just that ability to just plod along and go for a run and not have to, because I wouldn't say not push myself. You end up pushing yourself by the end of 50 miles, but not having to push the pace is maybe how I would put it. And so you're just running along all day at a pace that you could run at all day. And every hour or so you stop and there's all your friends and they have snacks for you. They want you to sit in the chair and they'll change your shoes and they'll wipe the sweat off your brow and all that. So that was a really cool experience and hopefully, you know, an opportunity to to help some of these bigger race series start to open their eyes up to the possibility of new ways of including Native folk. You know, we see so many ultras and prestigious races. They have these lottery systems, right? And, and so what I'm trying to help some of these races figure out a way to do, and it was really awesome partnering with Light, Lifetime and the Leadville Race Series folks to find a way that that perhaps down the line, we can have a separate category for people who are indigenous to the place that they're running to to not have to be a part of a lottery system in order to run on their own homeland. And and I think it's something that that adds value for all runners involved as well. And so that's something that really excites me is, you know, Native folks have been running in these places forever. And I thought about that up high in Leadville. You know, the Ute tribe used used to push herds of elk over certain passes, you know, and when they would do that, then their, their friends would be waiting on the other side and they would get the elk as they came over the pass. They funneled them through one specific part of the mountains. And, and so, you know, those high places and running and spending all day moving up there has always been a part of how humans interact with the land. 
And, and so I think finding those new and different ways that we can continue to keep those traditions alive is something that really excites me about running because it, it's just an incredibly community-oriented sport. That's incredible. What a great initiative. We were talking to another ultra runner earlier in the season, and they were saying, like, they finally won lotteries that they've been applying for for seven years this yeah. year. Like, it's that there's no guarantee, especially as these become more and more popular. Yeah, I, I'm not totally sure if this is correct, but I talked to a friend over the weekend who's in the sports marketing kind of world, and he was going on and on about how ultramarathon is like the fastest growing category and trail running as a whole is like one of the fastest growing categories in sport right now. And it's such an interesting thing for them to market to because, I mean, while like folks like, you know, the Scott Jerks and the Claire Gallagher's are freaking awesome and they're some great friends who've helped me get into the mountains, you don't need to look up to someone at that level necessarily even to, to get into trail running. There's a lot of people who do it less aspirationally and less competitively as it is just about that community and, and that ability to move outside and move through landscape. And, you know, I think there's a lot of folks who get into it because they're hiking and they see the other trail runners up there and they're like, wait, wait, you guys are hiking the ups and running the downs? And that's the greatest kept secret about trail running is you're allowed to walk as much as you want. And so I think in that way, it has this awesome potential to be an incredibly intersectional sport because shoot, running downhill, sometimes easier than walking downhill. So I, I love that about it. And, and it's really exciting to me to think, you know, there's going to be more and more folks moving through the mountains in that way, because it certainly inspires my connection to the place and to the ecology. It's also a little funny. Some of the the phraseology that's used to describe ultra running and its growth and its its popularity in the really recent times. But and I think especially across, you know, the prairies or on the eastern slopes of the Rockies, there are long storied and honored traditions of running in indigenous communities. Absolutely. And that's part of what inspires me to get into it is as a Lakota, we come from this this tradition that that I mean, there's tons of incredible Lakota runners right now, I would just like to say. But we had the great Billy Mills represent us in the Olympics in Tokyo and win the 10,000 meters, the only American male to win the 10,000 meters. And, and so I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty special thing to, to come from in that sense. And he still runs incredible nonprofit that's getting lots of native youth out there to run. And then taking it further back than that, you know, we have things like the great race and, and these ideas of long distance races literally for us as Lakota as, as a part of our creation story. And you know, a lot of that is rooted in the fact that before the horses came, we lived in a big landscape and there's really only one way to get across that. And so I, I think about that often where I'm like, man, like we're cool ultra runners now, but I would love to put some of the best of the best now up against, you know, just some of these like aunties and grandmas and stuff who used to have to, you know, haul teepees and everything that they owned from, from their summer camp to their winter camp and then run to go up on top of this mountain for this medicine and then come down and they didn't think anything of it, right? They were that's just how you got around back then. And so yeah, I just find that that idea so fascinating and, you know, things with like FKTs and things like that, where you're like, yeah, I might have come down this hill pretty quick, but 
you know, there could have been a relative of mine back in the day getting chased by a bear. He might've had the FKT, I don't know. And so I just love leaning into the potential that's there because the story of human beings running across the land is tens of thousands of years old. Yeah. I always, it's, it's something I always question with my students whenever they talk about first. Who, who's first and how do you know they're first? I, yeah, I love that, that question. And personally, that's why for me, I'm like, I don't really believe in, in first ascents. Like I think about the story of like the, the first folks, first folks credited with the first ascent of Grand Teton. Which, yes, this uh, is the know, example the I use. traditional homelands. Yes, exactly. And they went up and not on the summit, but in one of the just lower areas. They found all this evidence that people were there doing traditional ceremony, probably Hombletcha vision quest. And so it, it's silly to assume that they would have made it 90% of the mountain to a nice place where everybody could hang out and nobody bothered to climb up that extra few feet to the top, you know, and, and the same goes for the two guys here on the, on the front range of Colorado, better known or now known maybe as, as Long's Peak. And when you're on top of Long's Peak, it's about the size of a football field up top and it's flat. From far away, it looks like a perfectly pointy mountain, but up top, there's this huge space. And that's another mountain where, where the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, they have stories of doing, you know, their ceremonies up on top of this 14er. And so for me, I think like the idea of a first ascent, I mean, maybe, you know, Maybe there's a route or something in particular that you think is unique or whatever, and it takes this specific gear you have now. But like, I personally think human history is so long that, that, that a first descent is kind of a, kind of a silly idea. And I think that there's a lot more reward to be found in, in the commonality of reaching these high places, as opposed to the individuality of getting up on top of these, these mountains. I completely agree. Speaking of, you know, in a similar area, you've been working with the Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples in Colorado on renaming Mount Evans. And I know that Governor Jared Polis signed the recommendation that was issued by the group just a couple of days ago now. What, we were March 8th, so just a couple of days ago. So tell me about that work. For folks that aren't in Colorado, tell us about Mount Evans. Yeah, for sure. It's been a it's been a really cool journey getting to know about it and, and, and getting to be involved with the Mestaje Coalition, which is Cheyenne and Arapaho group here on the Front Range. And and something that I think a lot of people don't understand about Colorado because it's so progressive now is we really have one of the much like California, we had one of the worst Indian removal policies of, of any state in the United States, and, and that's part of what makes room for the, you know, ever more sprawling metropolis that is the, the Denver metro area is the fact that the Cheyenne and the Arapaho lived on these plains right here at the foot of these mountains. They lived up in places like Estes Park and Winter Park, where I live now. They lived in places like Boulder. And, and for us as Lakota, we were close friends with the Cheyenne as a tribe. Most Lakota is believed were bilingual and spoke Cheyenne. And so for us, we have place names for the Rocky Mountains here in Colorado. We have place names for places like, like Boulder, you know, crazy horse fought battles here in the state of Colorado. And so for me, I've always felt a kinship with the Cheyenne and that are the Arapaho for that reason. They say that the, that the warrior who killed Custer in the battle of the greasy grass, the little bighorn, 
they say that warrior was was a two-spirit, a Rapaho warrior. And so I've just always felt a kinship, you know, with these tribes and our histories being connected. And so as I learned the story of Mount Evans and Governor Evans, it was just a natural place for me to get involved. Governor John Evans was the territorial governor of Colorado before it was a state. He slapped his name up on this mountain that stands above Denver. You know, for those who don't know, Mount Evans is the most prominent peak above the city of Denver. When you take that iconic picture of Denver from the east looking west and it's the city skyline and there's these big snow-capped peaks, Evans is the most prominent one. And Governor Evans essentially made it possible and ordered this genocide at Sand Creek. And Sand Creek is just out on the plains, just a little bit past like Lyman. A beautiful, beautiful place. It's a national monument, historic area, something like that now, run by the Park Service. And essentially, he enacted this law in Colorado, a law that stood on the books until Jared Polis came into office and took it off, which is crazy. But the law read that any citizen of Colorado had the right to kill any hostile Indian for any reason. And so what this did at the time was it empowered a militia of folks from mostly Boulder in particular. There's a militia that was training here in Boulder, the same places where I go for runs, and some other militia members from Denver, and they went out to Sand Creek. And at Sand Creek, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho had been promised that if they would fly a white flag and an American flag above their camp, they could be left in peace. And so at this camp, you know, they thought that they had safety. They're in a beautiful place. There's food and water. And the militia and Governor Evans made moves to call the men away from the camp to have talks, to hopefully have peace talks. And as they did this, the militia went into the camp and massacred the women, the children, and the elders of the Cheyenne and the Arapaho. And after they did this, they went through the city of Denver and they paraded through the city of Denver, the militia, with the scalps and the body parts and the genitalia of the Cheyenne and the Arapaho people on sticks. And Governor Evans powered this, celebrated this. And even at the time, there's a lot of people, right, who look at this as absolutely disgusting. So for this, among other reasons, Governor Evans was shortly impeached after this event. And so, you know, there's a lot of people, I think, who, who look at these movements sometimes to change, change the names of places or whatever. And they want to call it cancel culture. You know, they want to act like it's some new issue. But I think it's really important to remember that Governor John Evans was despised in his time as well. But unfortunately, he'd already had the power as territorial governor to slap his own name on the most prominent peak above the city of Denver. So with all that horrible history in mind, I joined the, the Mestaje Coalition in doing a prayer run from the Sand Creek Massacre site to the summit of the mountain. And, and the Mestaje Coalition and the Northern Cheyenne and Arapaho and the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho, and it's important to make that distinction because as I said earlier, both Tribes were then removed from the state of Colorado. And so half were sent to Oklahoma, half ended up in Wyoming, and some of the Cheyenne ended up in Montana and kind of like Powder River country, which is where my people are from as well. And so all that, you know, 
those those tribal governments have been working for years to try to get this change to happen. And we really felt that this year that things were moving along. We recently changed a mountain by the name of the S word here in Colorado as well, that is just next to Mount Evans. So we had a good feeling about this. And so we did this prayer run from the Sand Creek Massacre site out to the summit of Mount Evans. And so for me, I ended up running three days along the way. And it's quite a climb, especially we did it in October, I believe. And so I ended up being the one to get to carry the prayer staff that last bit of from the base of Mount Evans to the summit. And we made a little short film piece about that. And, and you know, hopefully that using my, my platform as an athlete to, to be able to draw some extra attention to this. And so since then, it seems that these things are, you know, have all kind of come into motion. When we did that, we were waiting on the Colorado geographic name to make their recommendation to change the name. They did so. Then we were waiting on a Governor Jared Polis to make his recommendation to change the name. He just did so. And so now the final step is for the U.S. Geological Service to confirm that. I believe their meeting is scheduled for maybe tomorrow, I think the night. And it, it's we're fairly confident that because they have the recommendation of the state government and the state governor, that they will just confirm that. It's usually how the U.S., the, the national kind of level of the naming board work, because if everybody in the state wants to do it, you have a good reason. We're all for it. So we're anticipating to be having our celebrations on St. Patrick's Day in Denver to, to celebrate the official name change. And then I think one of the most exciting parts for me will be to see all those signs come down and then go from this exit, Mount Evans, to this exit. Mount Blue Sky. And Blue Sky is the name that the most of the Cheyenne and Arapaho people have agreed upon and chosen. And I think it's a beautiful name. It's representative of the, the Arapaho were often called the Blue Sky people by other tribes because they lived in the state of Colorado where we always have these freaking awesome blue skies over 300 days a year. And so if you ran into them, it was probably under a blue sky. And, and Blue Sky is also central, I believe, to some ceremonies that the Cheyenne people had. So it's culturally significant for both of them, but it's culturally significant for Colorado, too. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it to me is like Mount Blue Sky sounds beautiful and it unites the people of the Front Range of Colorado on something that that we all share and we all love. I don't think there's anybody in Colorado, whether they're Republican or Democrat or indigenous and you know whatever you are like you're united by this idea of being under the blue sky here so i'm really excited to to see that happen and and for you know my friends who are cheyenne and arapaho and are raising their kids there for their kids to get to grow up with this source of pride in their front yard instead of this this reminder of genocide so it's it's a powerful thing and i'm really excited to to see it cross the finish line amazing and congratulations. I've been following the story both like on your socials and also in Colorado newspapers because, you know, like everybody, I subscribe to Jason Blevins. And and yeah, it's so positive and it is culturally important for all of Colorado. But it's also like a contribution to this larger conversation we're having in, you know, what we're calling North America about place names and decolonization 
and and we're seeing like with Deb Kalid's administration working to eradicate that one specific horrific word, but also, you know, other initiatives to erase some of these more horrific colonial histories. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's important for us to really shift the focus of like, what is the power of what's in a name of a place? Because for indigenous cultures, we never named places after people for the most part. There, We didn't have peaks named after someone. If they were, it was maybe a character in a creation story, right? As opposed to an individual that we knew. And I think this is a really important thing because for us in the mountains, if I'm moving through the mountains and this mountain is named Evans and this mountain is named Pike and this mountain is named Kit Carson. Not only were those people genocidal people that don't really deserve to be celebrated, it doesn't provide any ecological context. And that is what the names should do. And that is what we did when we named places. But, you know, one that really strikes me in this way is Tahoma up in what is now called Washington. And it's named Rainier. After a guy who didn't even visit the mountain, after a guy who was in, it was named by Vancouver from Vancouver, right? And people are like, oh, it's cancel culture. If you want to change that name, you're erasing history. Like what the history of some guy with enough power to just do whatever the heck he wanted. And none of this is culturally significant. And then Tahoma means the mother of all waters, right? And then you look at that mountain and how the ecology how the agriculture, how all these things happen around that mountain. And you go, that makes sense. That is the source of all the water for all the apple orchards, for all the farms, for all these people living in the Seattle metro area. And so it's like, this is what a place name should be, is it should inform us Mm -hmm. about the place where we live and how to live there. The name by which we call it should include some of the instructions for how to live. And, And if we can't see that that those things are more culturally significant for all of us, no matter what the color of our skin or our cultural heritage, then we're really just having a conversation that's about spite, you know, and about being able to put our colonial power over others. Because you you can't argue that there's any use to a name like Evans or a use to a name like Rainier. But the rest of these names, you know, that they have a purpose that that applies to to everybody. It really goes back to what you were talking about in January about the importance of language and how indigenous language, indigenous approaches to language and naming can really help anybody sort of find that deeper connection in an outdoor space. Yeah. And I think that's that's the secret of it is like not only should a name, you know, not prevent the connection of one particular people group, but it should be a doorway to a story that we're all now a part of now that we're here on the land. And, and I think that's that's what that true inclusion is when, when we look at look at our history is to find a way that, that we all realize, OK, you know, we these are maybe three, four different strands of story that are coming together. But by sharing this culture together now, we're, we're braiding those strands of, oh, I come from here. Well, great. Call it by the name I call it. And you'll know, you know, what it provides to you. And I think that that's, that's a thing we've got to keep our eyes on, you know, is the fact that we all drink the water, eat the food that grows in the soil, and, you know, breathe the air. If we can't start with these commonalities that make biological life possible for everybody and agree like, okay, everybody deserves water. Like, 
then we're not capable of having any conversation. I've also found it interesting, you know, in the outdoor industry, in the outdoor space, on on one hand, there's this not wanting to change place names. There's just wanting to continue to honor these colonial travesties against Indigenous nations, against Indigenous peoples. But yet, on the other hand, totally willing to appropriate Indigenous culture for profit. I mean, I think it's important to remember that those that is the natural outcome of those stories. And, and that is what it opens the door to, to do. And, you know, that's, I'm pretty sure, you know, that's pretty well within what, what Governor John Evans' vision would be of our economy now, is that any white man would have the right to sell whatever he took from those natives, whether it was at the massacre site, whether it's all the land that the state of Colorado or the entirety of the United States or Canada sits on. But but I think that it's important to remember, like, that's why those names are there is because it's a part of this singular timeline in which they must assert this is ours. And I think that's kind of the, the clash between our cultures is even when it was ours once as indigenous people, we didn't see it as solely ours. We saw it as more so probably, you know, belonging to itself. And belonging to the trees and to the biology and all those things that, that are there. And so in the same way that changing the mountain name might allow you to forget the ecological responsibility to a place, this, this same path of colonization allows you to turn something that, you know, maybe it's, it's traditional beadwork. And through the lens of capitalism and colonialism, oh, it's just something beautiful. It's a style. Oh, native patterns are in style now, right? But for us, like when I think about the beadwork that I put on my goggle strap that I did with, with Smith, collabed with Smith Optics to do a signature goggle this year, and we put my uncle's beadwork on it. But what I was adamant about in sharing that piece of culture was sharing the story that goes with it because that pattern represents the four directions and the mountains, and the water that gives us life that, that comes from them. And I think that's something that's applicable to all, you know, people who ski, all people who get their water from the mountains, which is just, just about everybody. I, I think, you know, then it comes with this obligation, and it comes with this reminder, and it comes with, with a tie to my family that then I have a right to share, but then not everybody does. And so, you know, if, if you're just inspired by native art and you just throw some random pattern on something, you, you know, make some appropriated good, then it's, it's cutting out that ability for what you wear as a part of your culture to have a deeper meaning than just, this is pretty, this is valuable, this is capitalism. And, and so I, I think it's really important for people to look at how those things are connected and to ask themselves what level of meaning they would like to derive from mountains or the things they wear on their own body. And, and, you know, I think that's a cool thing to allow people to explore because that doesn't exist much within colonized culture is this ability to wear something that is truly purposeful and, and unique. But if we don't preserve that, it won't be available to anyone. I think that it's, it's something else I don't think people realize is unless someone is from the culture where the imagery, the pattern what have you is born where it came from, you'll never get the insight as to whether or not it's even appropriate to wear. Like, do you want to go out into the world wearing something that you could potentially offend someone? Are you that entitled? 
I mean, I think people up and on, but, and I think that's maybe like part of the whole, the whole culture clash is, you know, I think like a lot of times in the culture of the United States, America in particular, we have this exceptionalism that's like, I should be the guy who is able to go out into the world in a t-shirt that says, you know, let's go Brandon or whatever it is, you know? And it's like, it becomes about this thing of like, oh, I'm the one who's allowed to go out and make this big statement and blah, blah, blah. And I'm the exception to the rule. I get to go be offensive in public because you can't tell me what to do. And this is my free speech and I'm free individually. And I think what gets lost in that is the value of collective freedom and collective safety, right? So individual freedom is one thing, but, but the freedom of a group often lies in having healthy boundaries and having a container that says, well, we're a group now. So, so now I have to account for, for, you know, the elders. I have to account for the children. And, and I think we're much freer together than we are as individuals. But that's something that I think is lost in our hyper fixation on, you know, this American exceptionalism. It says, I'm the one who's going to get rich. I'm the one who's going to have all these things. So it doesn't matter if people like me are stepping on somebody because that's what I'm going to need to do to get to the top. And, and I think it's not reflective of the truth that like, well, actually probably the, you know, much like me running the ultra marathon, like the easiest way to probably get to the top is with a bunch of support. But I think we lose sight of that because it does, it takes so much more consideration to, to protect the needs of everybody than to protect the needs of an, of an individual. And that's what comes to mind for me in this a lot is like, oh, it's not that bad if I just have one piece of appropriated art or this, you know. And, and, and so it, it, it loses sight of the fact that like there's so much more value in that moment of like, what if you wear something that you and your grandmother helped create, you know, and it's your little cousin who gets to see that. And someday they know that they'll do something equally as purposeful. I just think that there's so much more meaning in, in what we can do together culturally. But it's it's a total, you know, you're swimming upstream if you're trying to live like that in the United States. Yeah. Also, I don't think companies really realize, like, sure, maybe, like, it's great to offer a product that's beautiful. But when you offer a product that's beautiful, but also meaningful, that's going to capture the market share. Yeah, I mean... In my experience of that, the only trouble I've had in my whole experience with Smith and making this signature goggle was how dang quick we sold out. Because we made amazing content, you know, to advertise it, we, um, that, that allowed people to see, oh, if you purchase these, like, you are a part of something meaningful. And we paid this Native artist and, you know, we work with this Native athlete and here's the things he does for his community. And if you wear this, you can symbolize being a part of, of sharing those same values as like that stuff like flies off the shelf. People really do that, but it, it's, it's not something that like, there's a lot of investments that have to happen there that I think it, it's easy for big companies not to value the, the personal relationships that it takes to, to get to something like that. Because like Smith and I could have never done that if they weren't open to the whole process of like, when they reached out to me and they're like, what do you want this to be? And I was like, really, we need someone else's art entirely. And I know you have a whole team of artists there at Smith, but 
just have them help me make the layout of someone else's art. Like it takes humility. It takes relationship building. It takes a level of process that I think capitalism like is pretty foreign to you. And, and so many companies are like, okay, like we just need to get this many SKUs out on the website in this amount of time. And that's our procedure. And that's how we've profited in the past. And that's what our, you know, ownership or shareholders or whoever expects. And I, I think like there's just not enough respect for the entirety of the process and seeing, you know, what is the gain from a project? Is it you, you net zero dollars, but you build a bunch of meaningful relationships? So important. Hard to quantify in terms of dollars and cents, but so much more important than dollars and cents. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the transition the outdoor industry and our whole world is kind of staring down the barrel of it's like do you want to keep profiting out here or do you want to keep playing out here because you're probably not going to be able to do both for very much longer i loved on the on your portrait by lamont joseph white that the artwork on the band was included i i noted when i was going through the series when it was released i was like oh fascinating like incorporating that art into his art i just thought it was a beautiful like collaboration yeah, I love being able to work with Lamont. He is just a really inspirational dude. Um, and I think like personally, as someone who really studies my my history and my theory and, you know, I just think that Black and Indigenous collaboration is is revolutionary in all senses. For, for folks who don't know, Lamont Joseph White is Black painter who paints, for the most part, Black skiers and snowboarders. And he's done a line of that from famous celebrities to you know some of the biggest icons in the sport to just ordinary black people getting to enjoy the mountains and something that he and i have been able to chat about lately is a series that he's doing of indigenous people in ski gear famous indigenous people from history in ski gear and to me that that's something that brings me so much joy is you know to allow our communities to dream of of our futures and our liberation together because when you look at the history of the united states like that those two injustices in particular you know are, are the cornerstone of the colonialism and the systemic racism in the united states that for all bipoc folks you know it, it's so deeply rooted in what originally happened to indigenous people and to black people and so if we can work together to undo the systems that that make black people and indigenous people unfree that will probably liberate you know people of all classes and colors and i love the places where you get to focus on that revolutionary work but do it in such a way that is creative and fun and not all about just focusing on sad histories but imagining bright futures that's the perfect way to say that too imagining bright futures i love that yeah um so bright of a future, so, you need to wear ski goggles. You said something earlier the year, earlier in the year that that totally made sense. But the way that you phrased it, I was like, "This is important, and we need to talk about this." You said, "I'm not an activist. I'm a Lakota man fulfilling my obligations." Yeah. Well, I'd first love to give credit in that because the first place that I heard that that phrase and that quote was from Lakota rapper artist Frank Wall. And I believe when he said it, he also said, I'm not the first one saying this. And, and I think that that's, that's an important thing to focus on. But yeah, I mean, I love that idea of being like, in Lakota, we have this, this idea is Ikche Wichasha. And Ikche Wichasha means common man. And so 
when we introduce ourselves as men in Lakota, it's it's sort of our way of maybe saying our pronouns in a way, but it's also this way of di- differentiating, you know, I'm not a chief, I'm not a medicine man. I'm what I think is quite ordinary for Lakota men. And I'm, re- I'm inspired and, and built to be the person I am by being around other Lakota men. You know, when I think about people like my uncle, little Bob, who did the goggle strap or my cousin Rory or things like that, like the standard to which I know they would want me to stand up for the land and the work that I do is based on the standard of who they are. And and I think that's a really important thing to understand that like, okay, like culturally, we've been taught these things like water is life. So if you're building an oil pipeline and you're coming for our water supply, even if it's in your, you know, capitalist secondhand way of being like, oh, we just want the oil. We're not necessarily intending to just destroy your water supply. My obligation to protect the water is the same as my obligation to protect, you know, someone from drowning. I'm standing on a dock and there's a guy drowning right there and his hand's coming out of the water. I got to reach down and, and extend a hand and help him out. That's an obligation as a human being. And in many ways, Lakota to us means the human beings, right? Most indigenous people, our names for our tribes means people. Lakota is, we're the people that we are friends with, that we get along with. And I think that's a really simple thing. But, and so then if being a person includes this requirement of environmental stewardship, then it's not activism to, you know, use your platform as an athlete, to, to speak about these things, or it's not activism necessarily, even for, for you know, my relatives who, who were on the front lines fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. That's not activism. They're not inspired by some culture of evil board warriors. They aren't inspired by hippies from the 60s, hugging trees, any of those things. They're inspired by knowing that in order for the next generation to live, and not just the next generation of people, but the next generation of the fish in that river, of the birds and the deer who come and drink from its banks, from the trees whose roots run underneath that river to sip a little bit of the water, it's, it's our responsibility to protect all their generations of life, right? And so to stop that oil pipeline from going through the river is simply the same level of obligation to extend a hand to, to a drowning person. So... I think that's an important way for us all to start viewing environmental action as we move forward is this is imperative to the continuation of the life of our species or many, many other species as well. And, and so I, I think we're, we're entering a time where I really hope that fighting for and standing up for the, the right to exist of nature and the environment is something that we look at as, as a basic human decency, as opposed to some sort of woke culture, activism, whatever, you know, and I, I would like to hope that someday conservatives and oil executives and people like that will also remember that they drink water and <laughs> that this is just as true for them as it is for us. You know, I think that's, that's it's one of those like cheesy internet, like meme kind of quotes. It always gets tacked up to like Native American proverb or Chief Seattle or like whoever it might be. But it's like, you know, only when the last river has run dry and every animal is dead and blah, 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 and this and that, will you realize that you cannot 
eat money. But that's certainly where the American economy finds itself right now. It's just like corporations, record profits, ordinary people can't go to the grocery store. And so, yeah, I'd like to think that that in these times we'll start to realize those things and, and extend it to the level too of like, okay, well, maybe you need to general strike, you know, to take the power back from from corporations that are making it impossible for you to afford food and a basic living or rent and all those things. But that's also doesn't make you an activist. It doesn't make you woke or crazy. It makes you a human being. And it's not something to be ashamed of or, you know, let some, some news media frame you or label you. Yeah, exactly. And I know, you, you know, you speak a lot in a in a USA context, but everything that you're saying holds true for Canada as well. We're experiencing all the same problems of late stage capitalism and, you know, all the same environmental problems. The nature doesn't know arbitrary line borders. It What happens there happens here and vice versa. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of one of the favorite stickers I've slapped on my on my skis in the day is it's the outline of the United States. And it says this, this border is illegal. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, all of Hurdle Island, you know, I think is definitely experiencing these things. And we kind of just experience them between Mexico, the United States and Canada, these different waves. But we're all one people. So many, so many of our tribes are dissected by an imaginary line. You couldn't, you couldn't find if you looked for out on the landscape. Well, maybe the southern one now, thanks to thanks to the wall. But I, I think that's really important to to remember. And I, I say that so much from the American perspective because I I feel like we're often like the the epitomization of all that stuff, and that like Canada's right right in our wake. Usually, you know, I usually go to Canada and I'm like, oh, this is like this is like America light. Yeah. It's like there's a way in which it's like all the same stuff is happening, but just like. A slightly different way, slightly different flavor. Maybe, you know, um, there's a there's a truth and reconciliation committee, you know, that, and you guys have the committee, at least you're trying. Well, I don't know that they've done anything, <laughs> but that's, that's why I often think of Canada as that, that America light was. Oh, it looks like it might be slightly better for you, but it's the same shit. They, uh, they wrote a really great report and they put together a really great website. Beyond that, the government has not done much. But what it did do is, is put information out there in front of people to understand how they could make positive change. And not the government, but individuals, universities, nations, they are. So that's yeah. who we're relying on. That is the one thing I've seen up there that I that I really admire is my Canadian skier friends, for the most part, like really seem to have a better understanding of things as a whole. Like the information is more available to them. And, and it does seem like a lot of times the, the nonprofit kind of organizations and things tend to do a better job of centering and, and letting Indigenous folks have a leadership role. That's something that I really admire like watching like POW Canada and friends that I have like who are really involved with that like Mike Douglas but also watching people like Sandy who works with like Ilsa and is an awesome guide and you know like there's there's definitely a wave of awareness that that I think we could do pretty well down here in the in the states to to follow along and be like oh yeah there's some models that, that are working but yeah it's 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 not all it's not all all the way there yet, but 
seeing it, seeing it come along and getting to lead and, you know, being in places like Squamish where you're like, oh, like you guys have like the signs. Like that's a huge step. I'm sure it means a lot to the, to the people here and to the folks who are bilingual. And yeah. Well, I mean, the work that you're doing and the communities that you're working with are certainly pushing that forward. And it's one of the reasons that we absolutely love having you come on the show. So what's next? I know you've got a couple of projects that we're going to have to wait for. You're not going to tell us about them, but like what's going on for the rest of the winter? What are, what's some of the plans? Yeah. So I'm headed out probably tomorrow, I think, to Silverton area. Hopefully get some good pow skiing in, do a little bit of filming. And I'm hoping to link up with some buddies from the Ute Reservation, as well as Fort Lewis College down there. A lot of folks at Fort Lewis is like 40% native students, I believe, at their university. And so, and they have a great like outdoor ed program. So going to be headed down there, link up with some of those people. And then hopefully back down to Taos after that. Looks like they might be getting some good snow and I have some more obligations to fulfill to, to their community. The, the last time I was, I noticed there were some kids who really love the ride and don't have skis and boards. It's kind of late in the season to throw them on any like the nonprofit organizational stuff we have going on. So I took advantage of some late season sales and bought some gear to bring down to them. And yeah, so those are kind of the next next few things ahead for me. And I'm really excited about it. I just feel like there's there's just this kind of magic to this season and an unpredictability to the weather this year that has just made the journey feel, I don't know, I've been able to go to the same places that I've been before and find new things. And so I'm just looking forward to a lot more of that. Nice. Sign up for any races for the summer? You know, I've been talking about that. I don't know that I'm going to race. I think the goals I might have might be kind of like outside of the competitive confines as far as running goes. I've been thinking about doing like some long, like a long multi-day traverse or something like that. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, keep us posted. We'll keep an eye out for that for sure. Yeah. Listeners, you're going to be, I'm going to post on the show notes where you can find Connor, where you can follow him all the different projects we've talked about so far. And then you'll have to watch the social media channels for the projects that will be coming out in the future. Connor, always an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Paloma Yellow, big thank you to you. Thanks for having me on and looking forward to the next time. And that is it for this episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Links on where to find Connor and everything that we talked about are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. This was a delight. It's always a delight having Connor here. And if you felt the same way, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside. Higher.